Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Circle Sanctuary Network Podcast, brought to you by Circle Sanctuary, one of the oldest nature spirituality churches in the United States, connecting people of nature-centered paths around the world. Join us through the week for a variety of shows discussing various topics, celebrating the divine in all of its forms, through nature worship, rituals, education, and building bridges of community. Welcome to our show. My name is Deborah Rose, and I'm your host on Circle Talk. Circle Talk is one of the shows featured on CSNP, Circle Sanctuary Network Podcast. CSNP, CSNP has a lineup of rotating shows throughout the month. Mondays feature Lunatic Mondays with host Laura Gonzalez. It can't be Tuesday without Circle Talk, and I continue to be the host of this fun discussion show on the first and third Tuesdays of each month. Wednesdays feature Circle of Nature with none other than Selena Fox. The second and fourth Friday of each month features Songs of the Pagan Tribe, hosted by Kern Greenman. Less talk, more pagan music, exploring the sounds, songs, people, and the wonderful, inspiring world of pagan music. And the third Friday of each month features Blue Marble, educational, echo-restorational, and echo-spirituality podcast that features echo-activist ventures, stories about climate impacts with climate solutions, and how you can manifest good energy for the planet. Celebrate the next full moon online with Circle Sanctuary Community. The theme for this month is Beloved Dead, and it takes place on Thursday, October 26th. Circle Sanctuary's full moon circles begin at 7 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m., I mean, excuse me, 7 p.m. Central, which is 8 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Mountain, or 4 p.m. Pacific time. Circle Sanctuary full moon circles include invocations, music, meditations, poetry, flexion, and ritual working. They are facilitated by Circle Sanctuary Ministers, Reverend Selena Fox and Reverend Judith Sazas, plus other members of the Circle Sanctuary community. Those joining online are invited to bring a candle to kindle during the ritual and are invited to interact with others in the chat on YouTube. Attendance is free and no registration is required. For more information, please go to circlesanctuary.org and on the first, the front page as you get to the website, you can see about the full moon circle. Please join us for Samhain 2023 at Circle Sanctuary on October 27th to the 29th in person at Circle Sanctuary Network Pres- Nature Preserve near Barnville, Southwestern Wisconsin. Many folks view death as an end, but for us, it's just the beginning of something new. This festival will explore the three deaths we all face, ways to prolong or reverse the ones we can, and ways to honor the ones we cannot. So we all grow up and we keep or reclaim our youth by connecting to our inner child and helping the next generation to prosper. Our bodies may die, but we live on by providing nourishment to the earth and leaving a legacy for those we leave behind. While our ancestors are not here physically, they are with us in spirit, and by sharing their stories, we keep their memories alive. 
What is Remembered Lives. If you'd like more information or to register, please go to circlesanctuary.org. All registrations must be in advance and before October 26th. No registrations will be accepted at the gate. The magic of the other world introduces us to a wellspring of Celtic magic. Tonight, I'm so excited on Circle Talk, we're going to be chatting with the, new, with the author of this new book, Morpheus Ravina, as we explore how to apply these deep traditions and methods to our own unique magical practices. Drawing upon polytheism, animism, and a connection to the other world, author Morpheus helps us develop our magical skills through ritual, deity work, for healing, empowerment, justice, and more. Morpheus Ravina, pronouns she, her, is a gender-fluid saucer, artist, and writer residing in the East Bay area of California. She is a dedicate of the Morgan with practice rooted in animism, folk magic, and Celtic polytheism. An initiate of the Anderson Theory tradition of witchcraft, she has practiced devotional polytheism and the magical arts for over 25 years. She is the author of the Book of the Great Queen and her new book, The Magic of the Other World. Morpheus makes her living as a tattoo artist, and she devotes and she creates devotional artworks and saucer crafts in a variety of media. She also practices medieval armored combat and is very fond of spears. We'll have to find out about that. Morpheus can be reached through her website at bansheearts.com. That's B-A-N-S-H-E-E-A-R-T-S dot com. Let's welcome Morpheus to Circle Talk. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. I'm so excited. A new book. And it is recently published this year, correct? Yeah, it just came out in July from Llewellyn. Oh, that's so exciting. Oh, my gosh. What inspired you? What, how did you co- – what inspired you to write this book? Because it's very good. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, um, I think that uh, there's a lot of folks who are practicing a, you know, some kind of a Celtic-inspired devotional path, Celtic polytheists, Celtic pagans, um, but, you know, there was there was a lot of, I was hearing a lot of people ask for, like, magical practices to go along with that kind of a spiritual mm-hmm. path. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and so um, I was inspired to kind of share some of what I do to kind of um, to help fulfill that, that need or fill that niche for um, a magical practice that is kind of aligned with and rooted in Celtic pagan or Celtic polytheist um, spiritual pathways. Something that I really enjoyed with your book um, that I think our listeners will really like is that you give, you give information, you give very good detailed information, and then you do a section after that called stories where you give uh, not only information, but personal practices on how to u- utilize that information. I thought that was very good. How did that come about? Yeah, well, you know, what, when I sat down to write this book, one of the things that I was sort of mulling over is like, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, a limiting quality to, um, 
to magic guidebooks that, that are set up sort of like recipe books or like, you know, here's right. how to do this spell or here's how to do this ritual. Because for me, this practice is very flexible and, mm-hmm. and it's very adaptable. And um, so, you know, what I really wanted to do was to show people some examples of different ways that this can look like, you know, it, it's really not about like reconstructing a ritual just so from the past or doing it in just such a way. It's more about developing um, tools and practices that you can apply fluidly and flexibly to kind of meet the needs of the moment. And so I really wanted to like not just give instructions, but also give some stories to, to kind of illustrate the, the different ways this can look, you know, and, and how it yeah. responds to the needs of, of your actual lived experience, if that makes sense. <laughs> yes, no, absolutely. And, again, I think um, um, I, as a reader, uh, enjoy books where the author kind of goes on the limb and gives personal information. Do you know what I mean? It says this, <laughs> yeah. is, this is something that I do. It makes it more authentic, I think, for readers. Okay. Yeah. And joy that you, um, you, that you do that throughout the book. Well, I'm, I'm glad that it, it lands in a helpful way. Because, you know, for sure it makes you feel vulnerable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, absolutely. Out of your absolutely. personal life. But, yeah. A- absolutely. Uh, the other thing that I really found interesting about this book that I really enjoyed was that you, throughout the book, do Saucer's Toolkit, which is basically yes. you take the information and then you give an example of how to use that information. Yeah. Yeah, my goal was to really put tools in people's hands in a way that they, you know, have some some practical things they can start practicing and also a big picture of, you know, what what is possible with this work and um i will admit that like my first version of the manuscript i just was i just had the personal narrative and i didn't have those toolkit sections where i was like describing nuts and bolts of how to use this right and um so i sent in that first draft of of my manuscript and my editors at llewellyn were like oh no you you <laughs> you know they pushed me in really helpful ways um right to to, to go back and create some instructions in a more practical way that's not just, you know, personal storytelling. Um, and I'm glad they did. You know, I'm actually really thankful, like, you know, for for um, for my editors kind of pushing me to, to level it up in that way because I think it, it makes it a more well-rounded book and more useful. I think it, um, for me as a reader, it enabled me to take the information that you gave and see how you use it and actually directions on how to use it. Like I really liked the, um, you did a term on for blades. And uh, again, that was really good. And you wrote it, I will compliment you until you wrote it in a way that you didn't say this is the only way you can do this. You gave an example yeah. and you wrote it in such a way that it would be very easy for me to add something if, you know what I mean? But it was a really good yes, outline, that, and I saw you do it throughout the book, and it was very helpful. That's exactly the goal. I, I want people to feel empowered to try things. 
Absolutely. And so, yes, I felt that. And I think um, our listeners will really, again, really enjoy this book. And and besides it being a great read, I think it's very useful. And it's a book that you could um, use as a reference, do you know what I mean, and pull out if Mm -hmm. you are Mm -hmm. wanting to to do something. Did you, how did you find, um, I know that you said you were the fairy tradition and you were Celtic. How did you find this path? Did you grow up pagan? Um, not exactly, um, but I also didn't grow up Christian, which is, you know, the more typical the, right. <laughs> scenario in, in the United States for a lot of people. Um, I, my, my home environment as a child was um, kind of a mix of um, nature spirituality, like my, my, my father is non-religious, but he is really connected to nature, sit in kind of like transcendentalist ways of thinking and, and connecting with the land. Um, and, uh, and my mother um, is part of a uh, religious tradition that's rooted in Hinduism. Um, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a church that was established in this country by a, um, a yogi from India. And so oh, wow. I, that, was, that was my, my early religious environment was going to um, – services with her and so like my first experiences of religious ritual were um rooted in hinduism you know Mm -hmm. uh, and devotional rituals for um some of those divinities and uh, a lot of like reading um stories and myths that came out of out of uh Mm -hmm. the traditions of india Um, so my first religious experiences were, were inspired by um, deities like Krishna and uh, Durga and Kali and um, those, those kind of beings. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, not pagan in the, in the sense of, you know, the modern in the traditional pagan, sense. But, yeah. But not monotheist either. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so I eventually in my tweens um, decided not to keep going to church with my mom um, that was and, uh, right. you know, went into kind of an exploratory phase. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I think that those early experiences of ritual definitely kind of primed me to be open to a, a pagan worldview and experience. And so, yeah, as a teenager, I started like, um exploring you know i was i was i was i was sort of inherently drawn to practices that i would later recognize as things we would do in mm-hmm. witchcraft and and pagan practice like going into spontaneous trances and singing to the moon and <laughs> stuff like That's that so fun yeah and um just you know connecting with the landscape in a very animistic way i grew up in in uh, the Santa Cruz mountains. So I was in a rural area with surrounded by a lot of woods. And you know, uh-huh. so I spend time like trying to have conversation with owls and stuff like that. <laughs> that but, yeah, so so eventually um, somebody in high school had a book on witchcraft. Um, and uh, I, I got a look at that thing and was like, what is this? I need a lot more of this. <laughs> I, I need to find out about this. Um, yeah, so it kind of went from there. So that is so interesting. How did you find the fairy tradition? 
Yeah. Um, so I, after I had started getting interested in witchcraft and had been kind of studying from books and, and developing my practice that way, I got a job at a metaphysical shop um, here in the Bay Area. Um, and uh, so I was working in, in this, this magic bookshop in Mountain View. Um, and they held classes, and one of the classes was a introduction to, it was like a Wicca 101. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I decided to sign up, and I took that class, and, you know, I, Wicca didn't really stick for me per se, but one of the teachers um, was uh, from the fairy tradition, and we kind of connected um, and started talking, and I was really interested in, in what I learned of, of, about the fairy tradition. And, and so I, I started working with her one-on-one and with um, her coven. And uh, so, you know, I, was, I, I met her through a Wicca class, but um, found my way into, into the fairy tradition that way. And then you became um, a priestess or dedicant of, uh, of Morgan, how did that happen? Yeah, <laughs> so the, the the coven that I mentioned um, mm-hmm. just now, uh, they have a a uh, a recurring kind of seasonal deep devotional practice with the Morrigan. Mm-hmm. Um, she is you know important to that coven, and they they you know honor her at certain times of year, especially. Um, she's you know part of their their um, path year round, but especially around Sao and there are certain rituals. And um, so just as part of being part of that coven and in my training in that coven, they were like, you know, you get to meet the Morrigan. She's it's sort of like being introduced to, to a family member. <laughs> she's wow. part of who we are. That's fun. Yeah. Um, and uh, that, that relationship really became very profound for me. Um, uh yeah, just, you know, from those first ritual encounters, mm-hmm. um, it, it, you know, it deepened from there. And um, even after I parted ways with that coven, um, my relationship with the Morrigan as a devotee just continued mm-hmm. to deepen and kind of become more of a center point that my spiritual practice revolved around. That's wonderful. Tell me, you write in your books, Talk to me about spirits. Yeah. This is the time of year for it, right? Like <laughs> This is. This is. And, um, and, and again, it's in your book. And I want to, um, to talk about how you feel, what you think, because um, some people are scared. Some, do you know what I mean? I think people have misconceptions about working with spirits. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big part of my practice and, you know, um, I think I talk about this a little bit in the book, but, like, I, I sort of think about the spirit world in an ecological way, you know, in, mm-hmm. similar to the way that we are surrounded by living beings all around us all the time, even inside of our houses. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. there's life that, that is, is, is there, and um, there are these, you know, populations and ecologies of beings that surround us. And the spirit world is the same. So, you know, spirits aren't just about, like, ghosts and haunted places. There are spirits in everything and mm-hmm. around us 
all the time. You know, some some places, um, the sort of the threshold between our ordinary existence and the spirit realm are might maybe easier to to access, but they are around us all right. the time. And and so for me, like developing relationships with the spirits that are already around us makes sense. Like as a as a a groundwork for anything we do in our spiritual practice and just making our lives flow better, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's about being in good relationships with the places where we live and the places that we traverse in our lives um, and all of the, the beings that we encounter as we, as we go through our, our days, um, having a, a practice or a methodology for, Engaging with those spirits in a positive way is really helpful. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's a big part of my practice. Um, I think of myself as an animist um, and kind of explain that you know, for, explain that for our viewers if they were not familiar with that word, what that means for you. Yeah, so w- when I say animist, what I mean is um, recognizing life in all things and that. Um, everything around us is alive and inspirited and, and um, that, you know, we, that spirits are, are in everything and all around us. They are, there are intelligences we can engage with. Um, so yeah, it's core to my practice, you know, like um, my, my approach to ritual always begins with a, an acknowledgement and honoring of the spirits of place and the land that I'm on um, a lot of the work that I do around, like, how I, how I wow. gather protection um, is working with ally spirits for protection. Um, I, I don't call myself a ghost hunter, but I am really interested in engaging with, um, you know, spaces that we would think of as haunted and, and those kinds uh-huh. of spirits. Um just because I'm interested in spirits in general. <laughs> do you, um, so um, if some place is haunted, do you feel a difference there? I mean, how, tell me what draws you there. I think that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when we talk about a haunting, you know, like, if you sort of take all the woo-woo, scary, like, sensationalism out of it, what we're talking about is the place where spirits are more noticeable to us, um, and that is often the case because there is, you know, there may have been some kind of spirit trauma there, or spirits mm-hmm. are trapped or stuck or like agitated, and that is one of the reasons mm-hmm. why, like, a normal, ordinary person who doesn't maintain a practice of talking to spirits, you know, there's enough of something going on there for them. To, to be aware of it. Um, and, you know, I think if we, like, if we step away from the sensationalist, like, ooh, spooky, spooky right. aspect of it, there's a lot of, there's still a lot of reason to engage with those places because those spirits might need some kind of help, right? The, mm-hmm. the reason why, well, part of the reason why, um, places that we would think of as haunted have this like sense of negativity about it. You know, part of it is because ordinary, like 
you know, normal people that don't have a, a spirit practice just think that dealing with spirits in general is scary. Um, right. But also sometimes those are places that have experienced some kind of trauma that is the reason why the, the, the spiritual activity is more palpable there. And, and so in that case, there's a way that we can help those spirits, or there often is. There, there might be something needed there. Um, and so, you know, it's not just about, like, getting a thrill out of it. It's about, like, mm-hmm. engaging with those spirits in that place and finding out, like, what is needed here for easing of, of whatever that spiritual tension or trauma is. Talk to us about um, um, spirit traps. I found that interesting. Yeah. Oh, I love this. Like, yeah, spirit traps are a really cool piece of magical technology that it pops up in a lot of different cultural contexts, right? So, like, you can, you can look to, like, ancient Mesopotamia, um, and you'll find these demon bowls that are mm-hmm. the bowl that's inscribed with a magical formula and, and often, you know, some kind of like drawings or figures um, to, you know, draw a spirit in and, and trap it under the bowl, right? And so, like, mm-hmm. there are examples going way, way, way back into ancient times. And you find different mechanisms for spirit traps in all kinds of folk cultures all over the world. Um, it's, you know, it's one of these things like that you see in folk practices where it's, it's a very practical tool <laughs> for addressing a need that comes up in day-to-day life, like can be disruptive. They might be coming into your space. They might, um, be having needs you can't met, meet, um, you know, spirits can be disruptive, just like, you know, they, they have their own agendas. And, and so there is a, a recurring need that people in all cultures, or, or many cultures anyway, have, have found to, to be able to, like, find a way of containing spirits, you know, trapping them, moving them, you know, taking them out of a space. Um, and, yeah, so there are all these really cool different techniques for, for doing that. Um, some of the ones that we see in kind of the more Celtic realm um, right. and the cultures, you know, from that region, um, you will see, like, um, woven and complicated and knotted things functioning mm-hmm. as a spirit trap. And the idea is that, like, are drawn to, like, try to trace the pathway of something and get stuck mm-hmm. in the entanglement. Um, like a puzzle. It's a puzzle for them. They have to stop. Yes. It's like it mesmerizes them. And similarly, mm-hmm. like, you'll sometimes see um, uh, spirit trap types that are based on having, like, many, many grains of, like, you know, sand or... Mm-hmm. grains of, of, you know, rice or wheat or, you know, some kind of like many, many small objects, like a multitude that, that the idea mm-hmm. is that like the spirit is sort of feels compelled to try to count them all, but it's impossible to count them all. So then it gets stuck. And similarly with things that are interwoven or knotted or tangled, um, it, it sort of is, has a mesmerizing effect and it draws the spirit in and then they can be trapped in that way. 
Um, there's a very cool theory that, like, the Celtic knotwork, what we think of as Celtic knotwork, yeah. you know, the, the interlace ornamentation that we see on things, um, that actually is a type of protective device that is working on the same principle. Oh, wow. It's like they've applied this ornamentation as a kind of spirit trap, and when you look at it, it's you can kind of see that, like, often the the – panels of knotwork will also have like creatures drawn inside of them or carved inside of them and the thought is that those are protective spirits so like the you know unwanted spirits are going to get drawn into this mesmerizing pattern of knotwork and get kind of lost in it and then these you know protective guardians that are also um drawn in there can uh can can do their role their their protective role. So yeah. Um, so and you need things to lure. So you need things that. to lure the spirit in. To the yeah, something to lure the spirits in, and something to contain them. And optionally, it can be something to wound or devour them. Mm-hmm. Those Give are kind of the components of, of the spirit trap. Yeah, um, well, witch bottles are a really classic type of spirit trap. Mm -hmm. Um, So a witch bottle is like, it's basically, it's usually like a glass or ceramic container. Right. These have been been found like in um, Britain and in Ireland and um, brought over to this country as well and and a few other areas, but uh, they're they're mostly British in origin. And... um, they would often be like, you know, found under in the walls or stashed underneath like foundations of houses and stuff. And it's usually a glass bottle that has um, hair um, or sometimes urine of the person that, you know, it was made for. And then it always has like sharp objects like pins, nails, needles, thorns, mm-hmm. broken glass, that kind of stuff. Um, also in there. And the idea is that the um, the hair and urine and those kind of things, personal concerns of the person that is trying to be protected, that's like a lure, right? So the idea is that, like, if a witch is attacking you and sending their spirit after you, they will sense, you know, th- this personal concern of yours. They'll sense right. It. They'll get your scent and they'll be drawn into this trap, and then the sharp objects wound them. That's um, really cool. And, uh, and that, like, basically the idea is that that then forces them to um, stop their witchcraft against you. That's really So they're a type of, that's of really counter cool. witchcraft device. Yeah. So is a witch bottle that you would um, – and it's funny because um, – People have them because they're pretty. I don't know that they really understand the exact uh, <laughs> dynamics of what they're actually used for. I'm like, I have one, and I got it because it's pretty. Um, it, do you use something like that, like a spirit trap, because you can feel uh, a spirit that is troublesome, or is that something that you put out preventively so that they can't come into your home? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, they, they can be used in both ways. And I think, like, traditionally, okay. like, if you look at the, um, you know, historical documents 
about this practice of witch bottles going back to like, you know, late medieval, early modern um, British um, origins. Like a lot of the descriptions of this, um, like originally it's more about counter witchcraft against a specific person who is believed to be attacking you. Mm -hmm. But over time, um, over time, the practice sort of evolved. And, and uh, like, within, you know, a few um, couple centuries, the, the practice is sort of broadening to, like, a more general protective, you know, preventive practice. And so mm-hmm. nowadays, we definitely will see people using them in a preventive way, like, you know, creating witch bottles um, and burying them under, you know, your porch or, you know, mm-hmm. hiding them around your um, boundaries of your space. So that, like, if something was to be trying to come after you, it would get drawn into this trap. That's really cool. But not yeah. all spirits are troublesome. Because you right. did a really good uh, job in your book talking about spirit allies and alliances. Talk to us about spirit yeah. gods. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's it's very big in my practice um, working with spirit allies, and I think like, um, yeah, very important to have to have friends on the spirit realm. <laughs> you know, they can see things we can't. Um, they exist in a less uh, corporeal, less linear, less localized way, and often and. Um, so they can be of great help, and uh, I definitely like feel like it's one of those building blocks of, of of practice that like you know before you go into more challenging or more risky or more dangerous practices, it's good to have those spirit allies like you know um, so I, I consider it a foundational practice and i and I often um, tell people like if you are getting started with developing spirit alliances and 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 building that up, like, you know, start with beings that you already know you can trust. So, like, you know, your ancestors, ancestors of your spiritual tradition, um, the gods that you already are in relationship with and can trust. Like, you know, you begin from relationships that, that are already in place that you have a level of trust with and you can ask right. those, those divinities to help connect you with, with spirit allies. And I also definitely encourage people to start with the land that they live on. Talk to us about land. And, yeah. Well, it's, uh, um, we all live in a place and there are spirits of and in that land and that landscape and that place. Um, there are spirits in our houses and of our houses. And those are all spirits that, that, uh, we can enter into relationship with um, Mm -hmm. that makes anything we're doing in that place better. Of course, in um, North America and in the so-called United States where we are, um, you have the, the, the issue of most of this continent being stolen land, you know, from indigenous Mm -hmm. people. And um, those ancestors are in the land and, their descendants are still here, you know, indigenous people are still here. Um, So that complicates it. And um, I think like in the way that 
people are starting to understand that it's good to begin with land acknowledgments. Um, I, I think it's important to acknowledge those spirits as well and, um, and, and honor the fact that we are, you know, most of us on stolen land. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, you know, speaking as a, as a European-American, you know, white person, um, mm-hmm. that's obviously different if you are an indigenous person and doing these practices. But, um, right. yeah, so that, that's part of it for me, like getting into right relationship. And I think, you know, this, uh, this maybe gets into another topic, which is that, like, it's not just about doing ritual. It's also about doing, like, you know, what you might call mundane work or manifest things, um, mm-hmm. you know, so, like, not just acknowledging the spirits of of uh, indigenous ancestry in a place, but also doing something to, you know, make things better for their descendants, right? So right. Like contributing to your local, you know, indigenous land trust or whatever, whatever mm-hmm. is in your area. That's, that's right. like important. You're doing something in a, in a concrete way to be in right relationship with the land and the mm-hmm. place and the spirit of that place. Um, and, uh, yeah, I try to do that with any magical work that I'm doing. Like I ask myself, you know, there's a ritual layer to this, but what is also the concrete layer that I can be doing to, to further this goal? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, your book, if I remember, you have, um, in there an example of a ritual to call a spirit alliance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I and I that's what I say in there is to begin with um, divinities that you can trust and ask them mm-hmm. to connect you with a spirit who is willing to enter into a relationship to work with, with you. you and yeah to work with you. And also, I, I find this interesting. Talk about offerings because a lot of times they will say present offerings, but. Um, People don't always know what could be an offering. Can you talk a little bit about what an offering uh, to spirit may be? Yeah. I mean, I think of offerings as kind of the foundational act of polytheism, of, of engaging mm-hmm. with any kind of spirit or, or deity. Um, offerings are kind of the foundation of that. And that goes all the way back to, like, all of the ancient, you know, pagan Absolutely. cultures. Like, cultures. Right. See, like, that Ancient is sort of everybody gave offerings. Central, yeah, exactly. It's like one of the central acts is making offerings, and it's a way of just establishing connection and relationship with saying, I am giving something to you, and I want to be in relationship with you. I, I, I want you to share in what I have. I want you to be well and, and, and receive what you need. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's pretty central. I mean, it's, it's very central to my approach to to developing relationships with spirits. Um, and, uh, you know, so, like, when you're trying to figure out what is a suitable offering, <laughs> um, excuse me, for, for any kind of spirit that um, is, you know, related to a living being, so, like, ancestral spirits that were once living people, Spirits that are connected to the land, to um, you know, animals, and any of any kind of like 
spirit that has a relationship to existing in the physical world as a biological thing, in general, water is not going to go, right? Like, that's a good place Mm -hmm. to start for water. Um, When you're dealing with spirits that have a particular, like, cultural tradition associated with Mm -hmm. them, like spirits that are coming from the retinue of a a certain god, from a certain culture, you know, that might suggest things that are appropriate, Um, you know, certain incenses or beverages or you know, foods that come from that culture. But you can begin in a much simpler way, you know, Mm -hmm. um, just water or with sharing some of the food that you are, you know, partaking in for yourself, um, sharing some of what you have. Um, I also think, like, you know, the spirits tend to acknowledge effort, right? Like, the, the point is that it's something of value, and so right. things like, you know, creating artwork for them, writing right. um, words and poems for them. Um, it doesn't have to just be like a libation that you pour out of wine. <laughs> right. Um, it, can, it can be something that you put effort into that says, you know, you, I value you and I put effort into creating something for you. Right. And my personal faith path is, if you're working with a deity or or that that doing research and reading mm-hmm. and finding out about them is also a form of an offering. Yes, yes, yeah, for sure. And you know, I also use divination a lot. Um, and you can that. also do things like try certain offerings and see like if it rots instead of you know, right. Um, instead of seeming to be received gracefully, that can mm-hmm. be a signal, those kinds of things. Um, yeah. And you also, we've been talking about more um, human-type spirits, but you also talk about animal spirits. Yeah. Yep. In your book. Talk to us yeah. about that. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously, like, any um, – polytheistic culture is going to have like animal spirit relationships Um, with Celtic polytheism. um, It's definitely there. I always feel like it's important to mention that like, we're not going to talk about spirit animals in this context that, Mm -hmm. you know, that phrase and that concept um, comes from indigenous traditions and they, you know, a lot of indigenous people have been saying like, please don't use that phrase. Um, Right. So, what I usually talk about is like a soul animal or mm-hmm. um, a name animal. Um, that is that's something that comes up in uh, from like Irish um, literature. They talk mm-hmm. about like um, there are there are like characters in these stories who carry the name of a certain animal, and that conveys that they have a special relationship with that animal. Um, mm-hmm. And um, yeah. Uh, those can be really important. I I think that like uh, <laughs> it's it's a complex topic, you know. Like uh, I mm-hmm. think the tendency that we often have is to think about um, animal spirit in terms of what we're drawn to or personally identify right. with. But if you kind of look at the roots of the tradition, it is much more collective than that. Most of the time, it's like um, animals that are identified with the role that you play 
right. you know, what you do in society, like if you're a warrior or an artisan or, you know, um, a, a healer or, what, you know, whatever, what the role that you play has, you know, spirits associated with it. And so that is sort of given to you in that, in that way. Um, they're, they're more about like collective relationships rather than like, you know, I personally identify with, you know, whatever animal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you talked about, I know that you are, um, a tattoo artist, so you obviously are also an art. Is art, and I and I ask that because um, I am um, I do paper crafts, scrapbooking, you know, and so oh, things. Nice. And I have over the years have incorporated like like I work with poppets. I will make a paper poppet and uh-huh. burn it in a cauldron, and I've incorporated that. And I'm wondering how have you incorporated your profession of being a tattoo artist? Um, and your art into your um, practice, your spiritual practice. Yeah, well, you know, this is something I'm really excited about, actually. <laughs> um, because I am, a, you know, I am a tattoo artist as my kind of day job, but I, you know, that's not separate from my spiritual practice. And right. so I do bring ritual and, and um, spirituality and magic into my tattoo practice. Um, and you know, I'm pretty passionate about that. Like tattooing has a very rich history, you know, going back a very long way with human cultures. And in most, most, you know, most of of history, it has been seen as a sacred art. Correct. We've kind of like in the modern, you know, um, commercialized, industrialized, medicalized version. (laughs) Of the practice, we've kind of separated it from that, but that's that is really its origins as a ritual art, and and I am like super into that right now. It's actually my next writing project. It's going to be on ritual tattooing, oh. and um, so yeah, one of the things I'm doing currently is um, kind of I'm working on deepening relationships with the ancestors of the tattoo craft. Mm-hmm. You know, like you know when you think of like any skill that you practice or, or craft or, or um, expertise that you practice, people mm-hmm. have done that in the past, right? And so those people represent a collective of ancestors of that skill. And they can be, you know, a group you can be in, in relationship with, a resource, a, a set of allies to help you with that craft. So that's one of the things I'm working on is, is developing relationships with the ancestors of the tattoo craft. Um, I am um, experimenting right now with um, like ancient tattoo technologies. Like in my you know mm-hmm. regular work with Ooh. my clients, I use modern machines and everything. But I'm interested right. in like ancient modes of tattooing. So like um, just this week, I was um, doing some ritual work to establish relationship with a hawthorn tree that grows in my area and kind of uh-huh. making friends with this hawthorn tree so that I can collect thorns and use them for tattoo needles. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> Not necessarily something I could ever like offer commercially to clients because, you know, you can't really guarantee that a hawthorn needle is right. sterile. 
Um, but I can test you myself and, you know. Right, and, um, or part of a spiritual spiritual yeah. practice. I think that's really Yeah, cool. yeah, as a, as a ritual practice for for deepening my relationship to the art as a as a sacred art. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's an area that I'm exploring a lot right now, and, and it's very rich. And, yeah, you know, whatever funny. art uh, people practice, go. I feel like yeah. you can bring this to it, you know, this deepening into it and, and connecting with the spirits of that of that pathway. Right. I think um, tattoos, the um, social acceptance and the meaning, see, I feel like it's changed over the last, say, 20 years, where the only people who got tattoos were in a war. Um, I have met many people, or just in public, like if I'm standing in line at Target and I notice somebody has a beautiful tattoo on their arm, you know, I'll say, oh, your tattoo's beautiful. And people want to tell you the stories. Yeah. I picked this because this is my mother, or this was my husband who passed away. Do you know what I mean? It, it's, yeah. People have such... Yeah rich passion and stories for why they selected that. And I think that that's relatively new in the last 20 years, that people are really using that as a form of expression and, to be honest, remembrance. I mean, a lot of people do that to honor or those that they've lost. Yeah, I talk about it as, like, telling stories in our skin. Right. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, almost all the time there is a story about why someone shows something and what it means to them and, the you know, the part of their life that it marks when they got that tattoo and, you know, who gave it to them, all those things. It's, it is storytelling and kind of, you know, making our skin a book that tells our life story. Um, and it's interesting that you mention about, like, it becoming more socially acceptable it, you know, like we kind of go through these cycles of, of um, you know, historically of like, you know, this, this narrative keeps coming up that um, tattoos are, you know, only for less socially, acceptable. you know, acceptable yes. people. And yet people have kept getting tattoos. And one of the things right. that, I, that I've learned the more that I kind of study the history of it is that um, – it's it's not that that the upper classes didn't used to get tattooed. It's just that their bodies weren't surveilled as much. Right. <laughs> so there's this whole kind of hidden history of, you know, what you think of as like elite um, getting tattooed, even up to royalty. Um, but we don't have as much documentation of it because historically a lot of the like documentation of people's tattoos in the past came from institutions like, you know, where people were criminalized. They got involved in, in an institution that right. documented and, them, like going into for prison, gangs. going into, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was interfacing with um, these institutions is when those tattoos got documented. And so elite people were not associated with that as much, even though they were getting tattooed. <laughs> and there have been like yeah. periods of, 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 you know, tattoo fads. And at that time, people were still, were at that time also saying, well, you know, it used to just be for criminals in the underclass, but now everyone's getting tattooed. Absolutely. So it's been interesting, Absolutely. like, this narrative keeps coming up over and over again. And um, it actually traces all the way back into, like, ancient history where, like, you know, is part of this narrative that 
for instance, Greeks and Romans used to uh-huh. separate themselves from the cultures around them that they considered barbarian. And so one of the narrative was, well, those people are the tattooed people, but we are civilized, oh, wow. so we don't. And, and that's just yeah. carried on so, throughout the century. Uh-huh. That narrative goes all the way back to ancient Greece and Rome and Persia. <laughs> so it's it's interesting, yeah. That is very, very interesting. So that might be the topic. So we have another book to look forward to? Yeah. It's not under contract or anything yet, but that is a project that I'm, working that, on that I'm starting to work on now. Yeah. That's really cool. So, uh, yeah, so let me tell I'm you, I'm so interested it. in the creative process. So are you someone, because I've interviewed a lot of authors, and some people are people that kind of write when the mood hits them, and then I've had other authors say, no, I have to, I give myself time, I have to, you know, be dedicated or I won't do it. How did the, how did the writing process work for you? Yeah, I, you know, I used to be um, category A where, you know, I would sort of wait for the mood to strike. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, when I sat down to start working on my first book and, um the Morrigan gave me a deadline to get it done. <laughs> there you go. So I had to learn to be disciplined about it. And also actually being a professional artist that, you know, is creating work for clients, for tattoo clients um, right. and, uh, and art commissions, like you do have to learn to sort of create a discipline of creating art rather than um, be moved by inspiration. And so it's right. about like scheduling time and blocking that time out. And that is time when you're going to be working and it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be drafted because <laughs> you can fix it later. Um, right. Yeah. So like doing this stuff professionally has really helped me to kind of create a discipline around it. And, and um, it's the same, you know, with my artwork and with, with writing, I, I block time for my projects. Um, and it's like, you know, the butt has to be in the chair. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And I've gotten to where I do that. I schedule time that I'm going to do creative projects. If not, yeah. I will simply spend my whole life um, looking at Pinterest and what other people create and actually not create anything less. Sometimes yeah, you just have and, to. Yeah, you know, the thing that, I, that being a professional artist really teaches you is that, like, it uh-huh. actually is not about – whether you're feeling inspired in the moment, like what helps you create excellent work is just doing a lot of work, right? right? And so it's about just putting in the time, creating a lot of art and honing those skills, whether or not, you know, the work feels perfect or inspired in the moment, you know, like you have to create a lot of less perfect art in order to make good art. <laughs> That's funny kind of you say that because I know, absolutely, I have, things that I will do backgrounds or, or just things that aren't really complete projects, but it gets that the muses come to me. I mean, it gets that creative juice flowing and then you can, you can sit down and actually do something. So for me, creativity is almost like a muscle. If I make, if if I do it all the time, it comes, the muses come very easily. And then if I, you know, I'm sketchy for a couple of months, then I kind of have like an art block, which I don't know if that makes it sense, is. but it, all of a sudden it becomes yeah, awkward. Yeah, it's very much, it, it is a muscle. It is, uh, you know, 
you know, there is muscle memory of like the drawing or whatever you're doing with your hands. Um, but there's also like sort of like that mental muscle memory of like just being in the discipline of doing that art, that craft, whatever it is. Um, the more you do it, the easier it gets. <laughs> yes, I uh, totally, yeah. I totally, I totally agree. So um, there's a story about a ceramics teacher who um, divided their class into like half the class. Um, was doing like just trying to make one perfect pot and the other half of the mm-hmm. class was trying to just do as much volume as possible and then at the end they found that all of the best pots were made by the people that were trying to just do volume Isn't because that that's actually how you make a better piece of work <laughs> just it's doing more funny. art <laughs> um, um, I do a public Beltane circle and we have a maypo uh-huh. and um we've observed in the beginning when everybody is very nervous and they're trying to be perfect so we it's kind of sloppy but once people start yeah. laughing and let go and then just dance it looks perfect so for yeah. me that gift is just enjoy the process and quit trying to be perfect yeah 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 yeah, yeah. i think like that is something that going professional as an artist really teaches you is just to kind of be less precious about your work, mm-hmm. you know, because like you're going to, you can just do revisions. You can just do another version. Like if it's not right, right there, you know, you're just going to iterate and do more art and it will get there. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, same with writing, like your draft can suck. It probably needs to suck and then you're going to revise it. So it's fine. <laughs> Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, I can't believe our time's on the phone. You've been a great guest. You are so interesting. And I loved your book. Oh, thank you. Um, any, any words of wisdom that you can leave, leave our readers with? Gosh, words of wisdom. <laughs> um, I, you know, I think the most important things are to be curious and to be I agree. humble. Yeah. I agree. So, and I will tell you, um, our listeners are hearing this on the podcast so they can't see, but I tell them to go online or Llewellyn um, or your website. Give us your website again. Yeah, so my website is bansheeart.com. So it's B-A-N-S-H-E-E-A-R-T-S.com. And um, And from there, you can find my Patreon is linked from there and my social medias, and you can find me that way. And look, and when you purchase a book, you'll be surprised because not only is it very rich and informative and a great book, um, your cover is beautiful. It was, it's a very, very pretty book. So thank you. Yeah, so, they actually put my art on the cover, which I was. Is that your um, art? Surprise oh, that yes, that is that is. nice. Thanks. That is great. <laughs> well done. Well, thank you so yeah, much, the- Morpheus, for taking the time to come and talk with us on Circle Talk. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. And I know our listeners are going to enjoy your newest book. So, folks, go online and go and search out The Magic of the Other World by Morpheus Ravina. Besides Morpheus, I want to thank Stephen, our sound engineer, for his technical expertise. And I want to thank all of you out there, our listeners, for your continued support of all of our shows here on Circle Sanctuary Network Podcast. Please join us next Circle Talk, which will be Tuesday, 
November 7th, Election Day. I look forward to being with you again, so please come back. Good night, everyone, and blessed be. Thank you for joining us on the Circle Sanctuary Network podcast presented by Circle Sanctuary and produced for all who follow nature-centered paths. Join us throughout the week for various programming connecting with the community around the world. Please don't forget to watch for updates on the Circle Sanctuary website at www.circlesanctuary.org. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash CSN podcast. We can also be found on your favorite podcast hosting sites such as iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and others. Until next time, many blessings.